Hey, good morning. Yeah, good morning. Uh, my name is John Irwin, and I had a funny thing happen. There are apparently some of you who, who actually uh, visit here every year on Memorial Day and 4th of July, and some people thought, is he the pastor? Because I, I think the bald guy is the pastor, but I always hear this guy preaching. So if you're on your annual visit here, welcome, and uh, I'll see you again next year, you know? Um, so it was, it was kind of funny. I had done a wedding of a couple, and their family always comes, 4th of July and Memorial Day weekend, and um, I got to say hello again annually. All right. Hey, we're looking at the promises of God. We're starting this new series. I'm going to bookend it. I'll also be preaching at the end of it on July 3rd, as I've announced. And um, I'm just thinking about promises in context here. How many of you have felt like there are times, like there are promises that just aren't delivered on, right, in life, in our culture, in the commercial world? Yes? Are there some promises that, yeah, they're not so much delivering those? I, I've thought of a few. How about those uh, commercials that promise to whiten your teeth? Now, I'm telling you, that doesn't happen in like three nanoseconds like they promise, or even a week, or three weeks, or three years. It doesn't work. Or how about the weight loss promises? If you go on our weight loss pill or our diet, I mean, you're guaranteed. You know, I'm pretty sure that doesn't work because that seafood diet, you know, see it and eat it, doesn't work for me either. Um, how about uh, the whole idea of on-time departures? Your airline says you will leave on time and get on time, or better yet, they promise you your bag will get there. Uh, it doesn't always happen, does it? Um, or how about this one? Um, the promise that this is a guaranteed return on investment. Invest in this stock and, yeah, you've been there too. How about the interest rate you were quoted on your refi for your house that didn't exactly go as planned because you didn't lock in at the appropriate time? Um, now, here's another promise that's a little more serious, uh, and we're getting a lot of those made. It's the political season, and people are making all kinds of promises, are they not? We'll just leave that one there. But here's a promise I found that was true. The odds of winning the lottery, I guarantee you, those odds are pretty true, that you're not going to win it, right? Uh, and so there's all kinds of promises that we ha are made to us, and maybe you've even made a few. But this morning, we're going to look at the promises of God. And do you know that God's promises, that none of His promises in the Bible has ever failed? Write this verse down, just put it in your notes. Joshua 23, 14 says, not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. That is great news this morning, but my question for you is, do you believe it? Do you really think that God will deliver on that specific promise, and should you trust God's promises? I'm going to show you this morning that I believe you can, and that specifically, God answers your prayers. Amen? Amen. Let's just ask Him uh, for guidance this morning. Heavenly Fathers, we look to Your Word this morning, I ask that you would enlighten our hearts. Lord, don't let the messenger confuse the message, and may your word ring true in our experience and in our theology, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, well, take your notes out. Look at the principle. How do we apply God's promises? Before I can look at our specific text, which is one verse today, Jeremiah 33, 3, so you can be turning towards that text. I want to know how do we apply God's promises, and I first want to give you an overview, and then I'll give you a couple of observations. The overview is that this word promise is used over 100 times in the Bible depending on the translation you use, whether it's the King James or the New King James or the ESV or the RSV or the New American Standard or the New What's Happening Now version. There are a variety of of versions that you can see that, but let me just give you a few of the highlights of where the word promise is actually found in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Hebrews 6.12, look at the end of that verse, and through patience inherit the promises. Or in 2 Peter 1.4, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. So God makes promises. In fact, if you look at the number of promises, whether it's the word promised used in the text, someone has said there's 3,773 times that God makes a promise. And some of those promises are in the form of warnings. You know, the first promise is actually a warning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. He says, God says, if you eat of the what? The fruit, right? And the a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that fruit, what's going to happen to you? You're going to what? Die. So sometimes those promises come in the form of warnings. Um, and uh, an astute observer in the first service pointed that out to me because sometimes we only want to see the positive promises of God, but there's also some warnings that come in the form of promises as well. Now, let me give you two observations. And I want to say let two ground rules for how do you interpret promises. Because one of the things is you can look at Scripture and say, oh, this is promises for me, and yet you look a little deeper, maybe the promise isn't exactly for you. So let me give you two principles. The first is the ground rule of the audience. The second is the ground rule of the context. Let's look at the first one. Is this promise for all believers or for specific audience or group of readers or believers reading this text. For instance, there are promises given to the nation of Israel. Those are different than the promises that are given to the church. They're not one and the same. In fact, there are some people who who believe those are one and the same, and that's called replacement theology. And they believe that all the promises to Israel are then going to be automatically fulfilled in the church in the New Testament. Uh, We don't believe that. Uh, here's, a, here's one. One of my favorite verses is Jeremiah 29, 11. Anybody like that verse? Anybody, can, could anybody quote that verse for me? Like, you know, this is a wanna time. Anybody can do it? Jeremiah 29, 11? Go, God, for I know the plans I have for you for what? For good. And what else? To prosper you. And anything else? There's a lot of stuff there, but, yeah, but you get the general idea, Right? So the idea is that there's a, this big old promise, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, if we took the time, and we're not going to really unpack this, if you went to Jeremiah 29 and 11, that's in the context of this larger context of Jeremiah 29, where the Israelites are in captivity in Babylon, and quite frankly... There's been a false prophet in chapter 28, a guy named Hananiah, who says, hey, this is, a, this is no big deal. It's going to end. You're, you're out of here. 
And Jeremiah kind of calls him and says, yeah, no, this is not going to end right away. It's not going to happen as you plan. In fact, because you said that, you're going to die. And sure enough, at the end of chapter 28, so Hananiah the prophet died in the same year. Just side note, if you guys, if any of you think you are a prophet, I would not go for that job. Personally, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that job because if you get it wrong, there are some dire consequences to your lifespan, right? And so Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, 11 is saying this is in the context that, no, there is going to be a time, but that's going to be 70 years of captivity. But don't give up hope because God does have a plan for you, Israel. He hasn't abandoned you. But we want to take that, that audience or that, that principle that it was for them and then falsely believe that that must apply to us. So interesting enough, that particular verse has been used to develop a whole theology called prosperity theology or uh, the prosperity gospel. How many of you have ever heard that term? Just curious. For those of you who haven't, let me just briefly explain what that means. What it means is that if you trust God with your life 100%, that He will automatically, He will guarantee it, He will bless you financially. Now, that doesn't make sense either biblically or experientially. Tell that to a whole bunch of Christians who have nothing who are living in Iran right now or who are being persecuted in the Sudan, right? That principle doesn't ring true. And one of the things is that they, uh, they, they, the kind of the name, the subtitle for prosperity theology is name it and claim it. If you say it, then it must be true. Now, there are plenty of promises you can claim in Scripture like, Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Those are general principles, but this specific principle in Jeremiah 29 is not applied to us. Now, I am sorry to say, you must throw away all your coffee mugs with that. No, I'm just kidding, right? It's still, there are some general promises that, you know, that follow that because he says a little later on that you can call him and you can pray to me, which ties into Jeremiah 33. So we just need to be careful who is the audience that this pro, uh, promise is being made? One other thing is if we believe that just because you are in God's will, that you will always be prospered, we know that doesn't ring true both experientially or in the Scriptures. Because then how do you deal with 2 Timothy 3.12? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's not a popular verse. No one wants to believe that one. Like, oh, uh, let's skip that promise. Uh, how about Philippians 1.29? You will suffer with him. Ouch, that doesn't sound like much fun. I want to just do John 10.10. I've come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. Let's look at that verse. Well, how about this one? James 1 says that you shall count all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so, yeah, that's also a principle. Or John 16.33 says, in this world you will have tribulation. So, Make sure when we're looking at all these promises, and Pastor Scott's going to unpack some great promises that you can really, you know, sink your teeth into to cling to, let's make sure, and our commitment, both of us, to you is we want to share those promises that are applicable today to you at church here at ABF in your lives, okay? Now, second ground rule, is the principle or the promise, is this principle or promise taken in context of the whole Bible, or does it have a specific application? Now, there are some principles and promises that have an immediate initial uh, fulfillment like in prophecy, and they have a greater or a broader context as well later on. Uh, I've always, already mentioned Romans 8, 28, 
But I think the real promise, by the way, if we just unpacking Jeremiah 29, which this is all the introduction, uh, is that in verse 12, that you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me. Then you will search me and you'll know your heart. Do you, did you know there's a verse in the New Testament? Side? Knock, ask, right? You, you seek God. So we see those principles that aren't just in an isolated text in the Old Testament. They're referred again in the New Testament. And that's the principle of context, all right? So with that as a backdrop, now let's look at Jeremiah 30:33, and let's see if it follows kind of the sniff test here in terms of, is this a promise that God delivers to us as believers? And I'm calling it the passionate prayer unpacked, all right? The promise of the passionate prayer unpacked. Now, many of you work at Awana, and one of, this has been my Old Testament kind of life first since I was in probably second or third grade, because I wasn't in as a cool a program as Awana. I was in a program called Jet Cadets. <laughs> yes, sir. I was in Jet Cadets, and we had these badges, like, you know, lieutenants and colonels and generals, and I had this badge that went all the way down to my, past my knees. But the one thing that Jet Cadets and Awana had in, in common is that you memorize Scripture, but not just in any translation, but God's ordained translation, which was the what? The King James Version. And some of you laughingly say, if it was good enough for King James, it's good enough for us. Well, I'm telling you, the ESV is a lot simpler, but the, the Jeremiah 33.3 in the, in the uh, King James was, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Oh, I should be a British actor, but that's, <laughs> that's why I have Rick here and Simone. They, they can do it that way. But the ESV is very simple. And a little easier to understand, no, knowest these. Call to me, and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. So very simply today, I want to just unpack three truths, three observations that we can learn about passionate prayer. And specifically, passionate prayer that will be answered. First, it says, call to me. We see an invitation to ask. God invites us, begs us, implores us, challenges us, and says, say it out loud. Don't whisper it. Don't whimper it. Say it. It's urgent. This is intense. It's okay. You say, yeah, but people will think I'm crazy if I'm praying. You know, have you ever been praying in your car? And Lord, do this for me. And your people are going like, are they mad or are they praying? You know, I can't tell by your face. Uh, the bottom line is God saying, ask for it. Ask for help. Psalm 91, 15, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Or Psalm 116, 1, love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Psalm 50, 15, I will call upon him in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and, will glorify, and you will glorify me. Beg him, ask him, implore him. Now, I believe certain nationalities do this better. Where are the Italians out there? No, nobody's admitting they're Italian? Okay. How about, the, how, how about some Irish folks then? Okay, just passionate, loudmouth people? You know, come on. I mean, if some of you are extroverts and it's easy for you, like, let me call on God and you're raising your hands. I love it. I love it that these guys just stand up and worship. They don't have to be invited to stand up. They're passionate about their worship. But be passionate about the fact that God answers prayer. Now, how many of you think prayer is kind of hard? Sometimes like, eh, I know I should pray, 
but you kind of view prayer kind of like broccoli, your pills you need to take. Okay, how about, okay, broccoli's pretty good. Let's go with lima beans. Pick the worst vegetable on the planet, and that's how you compare prayer. I get it. So sometimes we got to be kind of prodded. We got we to gotta pray. Now, God himself's imploring us to ask, right? And the word there, Lord, that called to me, that Yahweh word is used uh, over 6,800 times in the Bible. It's the, it's the personal name for God. And who are we supposed to talk to? To him. Call to me. Now, it's not bad to talk to your spouse about it. It's not bad to talk to other people. It's not bad to talk to those who are wise mentors in your life. But sometimes we talk to everybody but God, right? So who do we rely on? Now, at this point in sermon, you would say, you could go to an illustration book and find unbelievable answers to prayer that someone got answered 100 years ago. That's kind of lame because you know what? I've had to live this. I live this first because I believe God answers prayer. You know the first one? First one that I, a really big one that I, I can remember that I can tell you about is where I was going to go to college. I mean, all these folks are like, where are we going to college? And today it's a lot harder. They got to put like 19,000 applications in. They all cost 150 bucks a pop or 100. And like, oh, I hope I get into one of these schools. And you have safety schools and, you know, preferred and, you know, stretch schools. I wasn't that bright. I wanted to play baseball, and I loved Jesus. I said, Lord, if I could do both, would you reveal that school? So I, I got accepted to Brown University. They don't really have a, a decent baseball team, and I'm not smart enough to go to that school. I said, okay, Lord, thanks, but uh, how about something closer to home, right? And I got into Biola University. Now, I had this mistaken idea that I was going to be a baseball player. <laughs> God has a great sense of humor. I played one year of baseball. But I got four years of Bible, and God answered my prayer. He revealed what school I should go to. So some things are easy. You ask for it, and it seems like the answer is evident. But then the stakes got a little higher, right? I get out of college. There's this hot chick that I've been dating off and on for six years. My heart goes pitter-patter when I'm thinking, could she be the one? By the way, those of you who don't know me, I am married, and that's the chick. Uh, she's, <laughs> we've been married 38 years, and her name's Cheryl, and I'm not going to tear up because she's not even here, and I didn't tear up last hour, so we're all good. So the bottom line is, uh, we prayed about it, you know, should we get married? And, you know, I, by the way, I believe a big fan of short engagements, proposed to her in April, we were married by August, get this thing done, Right? And God answered that prayer. So then you're working in your first church at Huntington Beach, California. You're thinking, this life is good. What better life could a guy have but working in Huntington Beach as a youth pastor? Whether you surf or not, irrelevant. But the bottom line is I got the greatest job in the world, and God does this. You're going to Minnesota. You got to be kidding. I mean, seriously, God. I'm going to Minnesota. What did I do? I'm thinking, I'll confess all my known sin. Why? Right? You're sending me to the land of the frozen chosen? Are you kidding me? What did I do wrong? This is not a promise of answered prayer. This is a punishment. And I, we cried halfway to Minnesota. We're like in, we're in Phoenix. <laughs> like, that was worse than the children of Israel looking back to Egypt. 
But the bottom line is, unbelievable. We obeyed God. He answered our prayer. It was the right place. It's where we raised our kids. Awesome. Could have never predicted that because God was the one who was in it. And then he moved us back to California. Yay, there is a God. I've been rescued. 14 long Minnesota winters, not 15. It was awesome. But I was still thankful. Either way, I'll serve you wherever, God, but California is great. So there are times where I've begged God, I need clarity on this. Maybe some of you have been in that situation where you don't know what job to take. You've got a couple of job offers. So if you're going, how about we just settle with getting a offer? You know, if you've ever been unemployed, that's a big one too, right? God, please answer that prayer. So I've got to ask you, just, just in your notes there, you know, I gave you some big white space there. Why don't we ask? Why don't we call on him? I want to give you three reasons why. Number one, you're too busy. You're too busy planning your own life to stop in and check in and say, hey, what do you think about this one? Right? We're just too busy. In fact, we're too busy running, and, and maybe we think God's too busy. The flip side of busy is we think he's too busy to really, like, care about our little puny requests, right? Secondly, you don't call on God because you don't want his answer. Some of you pray about things you absolutely already know the answer, and you know that you shouldn't be asking for this. Oh, please, dear God. There's only, by the way, this prayer, oh, please, God, give me a brand new Maserati at a really good price that I can now then sell it for a profit and make my down payment on my next house. The only guy that ever gets those prayers answered is our pastor. I mean, he buys cars. I mean, unbelievable. He can buy a car, you know. That, that car should cost $9 bazillion. He gets it for three. And then, you know, he can feed a f- small third-world country with the sale of that car. By the way, I'm saying that in complete, like, if you've ever needed to sell a car, sorry, he's got a full-time job, but he is really good at it, really good at it. But sometimes we ask for things, you go, ah, oh, come on, God, really? I'm asking for the wrong thing, right? We don't want to hear his answer. Thirdly, we think we don't need to. Now, this is insidious, and I, no humor intended here. Sometimes we don't ask God because we think we're in charge. Now, we would never say we're in charge. We just kind of place ourselves, and God's our first lieutenant, but we're actually the general of our own life, right? And so we, don't think, we think we know better than God. Well, he says, first of all, in the first observation, is that we are to, uh, invited to ask. Then there's this expectation that he'll answer. He says, I will answer you. He promises to answer our prayers. He's going to answer. He's going to show us. He's going to tell us. And this particular uh, prayer, that uh, promise, is that it's unconditional. There's no condition. He says, you call, I'm going to answer. Uh, side note, God can't lie. So he says, if you call, I'll answer. He can't lie about that. Write this down, Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God doesn't lie. He keeps his promises. The problem is, we fail, don't we? We, at, we make promises we can't keep. Now, I've been honest. I'll be a little more honest in, in a few more minutes. Just raise your hand Have you ever had a well-intentioned promise you did not keep? Just raise your hand, get it off your chest, admit it now, look at your spouse, say, I'm so sorry. Um, All right? We've all done it. Now, are you liars because you didn't keep your promise? No, you had a well-intentioned promise. You tried to. Uh, So when I first got married, uh, 
the deal was my wife was so sweet. And if you know Cheryl, she just, she's like the sweetest, kindest person on the planet. And she would call. This is the day before texting, all right? You actually had to deal with people verbally um, and on a phone, <laughs> landline. And she would call around five, hey, sweetie, what time do you think you'll be home? Well, now, literally, I lived less than two minutes from home, all right? Uh, I, the church was here in Huntington Beach, and my, our apartment was around the corner, and uh, I could literally drive there in 90 seconds. If I walked fast, it would, you know, be four minutes. You know, it was fast. So I said, well, I, I'm, probably, I, I'm five minutes away. I'll, I'll be home in five. Then it's 520, then it's 530, it's 540, phone rings again. Hey, honey, are you on your way home? Now... Think about that second question. I'm a pastor. The scripture says, thou shalt not lie, right? So, uh, no, I'm not on my way home, right? Because I had good intentions to be home, but I just got caught up in one more thing, one more thing. God's not like that. He doesn't get caught up in one more thing. He says he's going to answer. He makes a promise. He's going to deliver. When you ask, he will give you that answer. Now, you say, well, that all sounds good that he keeps his promises. And by the way, his promises to you don't stress him out. Isaiah 46, 11, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. God's got this. He's got this. So, those of you who are thoughtful thinkers are saying, what is the problem? If God's answering prayer, what is our problem then with answered prayer? You know the answer. The problem is we don't like the answer that we get, right? So there are three kinds of answered prayer. The first are the yes answers. How many like yes answers to prayer? I pray it, I want it, it happens. Raise your hand. The rest of you who are not raising your hand are just like tired and cranky today, right? Like, of course we like answered prayer. Of course we want God to answer that prayer. Then there, and those things are, are sometimes easier because uh, Pastor Scott's going to unpack some promises where we pray it. God says he'll give it to you, like James 1, uh, 5. He says, and if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously without reproach. How about with temptation? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation taking you, but such is common as a man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape. There's a promise you can sink your teeth in. We're going to look at some of those promises. So it's not the yes ones that are aligned with God's will that we have a problem with. Sometimes we have a problem with the no ones, right? This is clearly not good for you, you know? Any of you that have been in a questionable relationship and you're wondering whether you should stay in it, you're a believer. They're not. You're wondering why God's not blessing that relationship. Maybe you shouldn't be in that relationship. No, he's not going to answer prayer. No, you shouldn't probably get married. No, I can definitively say, don't be unequally yoked. No, the answer is no. Others, you're stretching it when you want to say, well, yeah, but it's just a gray area. I, I should be able to do this. And God says, no, this isn't good for you. I don't care if it's a gray area or not. It's not good. It's not good for your life. You're on the edge ethically. No. But I'm get, venturing to say that it's not the yes answers. It's not the no answers that you struggle with. You struggle with the same ones I wrestle with. And what's the third category? Not now. Wait. Let me ponder that. For you, you look at God and say, it's the I'll get back to you answer. Now, there's some things you just have to wait on, right? And that is so hard. I hate waiting. I hate waiting at lights, especially red ones. 
not confessing anything, not saying if it's late at night, it's a stop sign that I roll through it. Now, I was cured. I got my first ticket for that uh, when I was 16. So it's the wait answers. It's when someone is deathly ill and you're praying that God would heal them and it doesn't happen overnight. Now, there are great answers to prayer where someone's been healed. Gordon's a living example of that in the front row. God healed him, literally. But some of you have prayed for healing and it's not happened. You've been fighting chronic pain in your body for 30 years. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Prayer went unanswered. Three times he implored God, take this from me. No, not yet. Some of you prayed for something so long, you wonder if God's tired of you being persistent on it. Some of you prayed for someone who doesn't know the Lord, and you're a believer, you're a Christ follower, and that still hasn't happened. And doubt begins to creep in, and you wonder, man, is God as faithful as he says he is? Maybe a little closer to home. You got a son, you got a daughter, you got a granddaughter, or you got a grandson who are far from God. And you are begging him. You are begging him. Please, don't let this kid die while he's homeless. Don't let this kid do something that irreparably ruins his life. In your private moments, you're angry because it isn't happening and you don't see any progress and you're clutching to any little thing you can grab onto to a glimmer of hope that maybe God will answer that prayer. And day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you wait. You wait. And you wait some more. And the silence you feel in this moment is the silence you sometimes feel from God. And you want to trust Him. But you can't hear Him. And sometimes... It's all you can do is to say, I don't have that faith, God. Just take this thing, right? It's the weight answers for us that oftentimes cause us so much angst. I've had a few of those. If the truth be known, I've had a lot more than I'm willing to admit to. But here's why I love this promise. Because God, in his sovereignty and in his timing, he will answer. And what I need is the common sense and the trust to believe that his answer is better than what I might have wanted. Because sometimes I don't get it right. And so those are the three kinds of answers. And then the third observation is pretty simple. He says... Then I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. He provides revelation that provides understanding. The third observation, there's insight or revelation that provides understanding. You see, a lot of times when we ask God to do something, we don't quite understand what His total big picture plan is, right? Like, 
How is this all going to play out? How is this going to work out? How in the world is moving to Minnesota any remotely part of being part of God's will, right? And we look back now and we go, oh, this makes so much sense. And I think I've used this illustration before. God makes sense oftentimes when we look backwards in our life about what he's done. Remember that rowboat illustration I've used before? When you're rowing, you're rowing like this and you're going this way. You can't see where you're headed, right? But God's there. He said, yeah, just keep rowing. I got you. I can see where you're going. Yeah, but what do we want to do? We want to peek. Well, I kind of want to know where I'm going. He says, no, no, I got to just keep rowing. And I think oftentimes when we look back in our life historically, God's been faithful. The reason you did this in the river is when you kept looking back because you wanted to get it right. And then you took this U-turn and you went the wrong way. If we just listen to God, we're just rowing and just listen. He's looking in the direction. He's going to take us. And so he'll reveal it to you. He'll provide the insurance. He'll help you understand. He'll give the insight. Isaiah 48, 6, write this one down. It says, you have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. The bottom line is we're not God. We can't know the future necessarily. We do some prophetic things in the future, but God doesn't always explain it point by point by point. He, you just got to trust him. You've got to trust him. And this idea of uh, illuminated or, or uh, this great and mighty thing, it was used, uh, it really means inaccessible. It was guarded. It's unsearchable. It's used metaphorically, it's inaccessible, and, and some of these things we're never going to know this side of eternity. I can guarantee you, any of you who have lost a mom or a dad as a young child, when you get to heaven, you're going to ask, God, wh why? I only got to know my dad. He died when I was eight, or my mom passed away when I was 13. Don't know. But this side of heaven, we may not get those answers. And so we know uh, that there are certain things we can't do in our own human effort. And that's what's so frustrating when we believe God, but we don't live like it. Our theology somehow doesn't really add up for us. And we say we believe it in our head, but we're not experiencing it in our lives. And so I know that he says that he's going to answer. And he's going to give me insight that I wouldn't have normally gained. And for me, that insight doesn't usually come in the moment. It comes much, much later after I've reflected. It never happens in the now. It's always in the future. So sometimes it's a timing thing. So as we wrap up, <clears throat> the problem is this. What keeps us from trusting God's answers then? When it's all said and done, what keeps us from trusting God's answers? Number one is bitterness. Bitterness. And it goes like this. How could God do this to me? Why doesn't he rescue me from this horrible situation? How long do I have to live like this? And what I want to suggest to you is don't let bitterness control you. But don't also, on the other hand, be afraid to say, God, this doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. If you ever wondered in Scripture, David felt those feelings, right? Read the Psalms. There's so many times where David is crying out to God. Uh, sidebar, how many of you have ever had a boss that was just a total jerk to you? Raise your hand. I'm not raising my hand. I have a great boss. But it's you that are raising your hands, right? And David had some of those experiences. Psalm 73, right? 
Why are you blessing the evildoer? Why, why are they profiting financially? Uh, there's a whole set of prayers that David does. They're called the imprecatory prayers. Those are my kind of prayers. Yeah, slay the evildoers, right? Feels good. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, right? So there are times, though, that it goes from, hey, we want justice to we're just flat out bitter. Maybe your heart's been broken so many times by life's hurts that it's just easier to blame God. And you find yourself, your heart encased in this cocoon of bitterness. Maybe someone's disappointed you. Maybe it's a spouse even that's disappointed you so many times. You're like, God, can't you deal with this knucklehead that I'm married to, right? And you, you pray it and, and then you see no result. So we want to blame God. Secondly, what keeps us from trusting God's answers is fear. What if things never change? What if that kid never comes to his senses? What if this cancer doesn't go away and it keeps coming back? We've got good friends in Yorba Linda who's he's one of the pastors on staff at my former church. His daughter's... 13, she got cancer when she was eight. She's been fighting this for five years. So many rounds of chemo, so much, so much. And you just wonder how long can she survive? People have been praying for her healing. Right now it doesn't look like that's the prayer that's gonna be answered. So we fear things. For those of you who have feared something, whether it was on the verge of being homeless yeah, believe it or not, people in this room have been on the verge of being homeless. It happens. It happens in Agura. That's why we believe in this feeding ministry, because there are people who need the love of Jesus. And that plate of food tells them, tells them that there's a God who loves them, and there are people who care. And their soul matters, but their daily life matters. That's why we're going down to build this house in Mexico. There are people who live in a dump. They have no food or shelter, really. Every day that we go to build that house on that same day, we're going to be feeding kids who wouldn't have eaten a decent meal. And your money is paying for those kids to eat for that week. That's Jesus, friends. That's not the social gospel. That's Jesus in the flesh saying, don't fear that. It's reality, but don't fear it. God's got this. And then thirdly, there's doubt. Third reason is doubt. Do we really believe that God knows, his, knows best? Is he too busy? Is my puny little issue big enough for him? To, am I going to get on his agenda? And the biggest area of doubt for some of you are those of you who are captured in an addiction. And you're wondering, God, can you ever, please, I'm begging you. I, I, I need you to take this addiction. And I know it's a complex subject. I don't want to minimize that. But you doubt. And what I find is if you're bitter or fearful, it just fuels the fire of doubt. And that becomes the raging, controlling emotion in your life as it relates to prayer and to God. Because it goes at the core of who you are. Let me just suggest to you, just think about this, that if you look at doubt in the Scriptures, the original doubter is Satan challenging the woman and saying, God really doesn't care for you. And he's placed doubt in our lives 
parentally for decades. It's an old, it's an old strategy. Satan causes doubt. Now, you don't think Jeremiah wrestled with doubt in writing this passage? Think about this. Uh, just think in his context. If you, if you study Jeremiah, first of all, he preaches for over 50 years and doesn't have a single convert. I don't know about Scott and I, but if we had to do that, we'd say, hmm, I'm not sure I'm called to ABF, right? We've got to have some results here somewhere along the way, right? Number two, he's not preaching this message like everything's going to be hunky-dory, yay, God. It's you're going to get judged, you better clean up your act, otherwise you're going you're to have another nation that's going to take you down. Have you ever studied the book of Judges? Time after time, he says, oh, yeah, we'll do it, we'll follow you. And they go, okay, okay, and then they fall away again. And again, and God has to bring another nation in their life that says, hello, I'm still here. What are you doing? We're doing what we want. No, you're not. <laughs> right? And that cycle repeats itself over and over and over again. And so Jeremiah didn't have it so easy. By the way, he's a single guy. I, I did a little research. He's not married. Who could be, I mean, the guy, you know, he's the weeping prophet. You know, Mr. Bad News, right? Be married to him, that would be tough, right? Do you think he had questions for God? I think he did. And yet he authors this wonderful promise, call unto me and I will answer you and show thee great and mighty and hidden things which thou knowest not. That's the God who hears your prayers today. Chad's gonna come and I wanna wrap up by challenging us to think about the reality of that promise. Because I'm pretty sure it's not the yes answers or the no answers that are really bothering you right now. For some of you, it's the, I'm in that waiting room of God. And there's something that God has in your life that's unresolved. It's unresolved in your life. And so as you pray with me today, I want us to start with this, because we're going to look at a lot of promises in this series, but the fundamental promise is that God is true. He keeps His promises. It's not a well-intentioned idea. He will deliver, and some of you have been praying for things that just haven't happened, and they're the right things to be praying about, right? I've been praying that my son would marry a godly person that would help him Organize his finances. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's meddling now, right? My son's going to get married on July 31st. There is a God in heaven, right? Holy smokes. But the bottom line is this. There are some things that we can rejoice in, but there are some hard things right now. They're hard to let go of. There's hard things to trust God. So would you close your eyes? And I want you to think about your life for a moment. <clears throat> What is that thing that you're asking God for this morning that you haven't seen that answer just quite yet? Maybe a relationship that's, maybe it's just a relationship that's just really gone south. Maybe it's a marriage that's on the brink. Maybe it's a child who's gone far from God. Or maybe it's just the fact that in your timing, God's just not moving fast enough. If you've ever had a, a problem with trusting God, 
for something and there's something even right now that you've got to give it to God right now. Would you do me a favor and just look at me? This is between you and me and God. No fanfare. Just you and me. Just look at me. Okay. Thanks. Yep. Yep. Anybody else? Wait till I see your eyes. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 All over this auditorium, and I'm with you. I'm raising my hand too. I'm looking at you. I've had those things where I just got to, I got to let go. I got to trust God for that thing. As we open this series, there's a promise of answered prayer. God's going to answer. may not be in our timing, but He will answer. And so, Lord, we ask today that you would take this thing. Whatever we've been yearning, we're compelled to give it to you. We ask you for it. And, Lord, we lift it up right now. All over the side of the lift that thing up privately to the Lord. Lord, I'm, I'm relieved I don't have to carry that thing. I'm giving it to you. If the truth be known, I'm giving it to you for the 19th time because I kept taking it back. Lord, hear our prayers. We are calling to you. And we know you'll answer. And someday you'll show us the hidden thing on why. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, uh, when we were picking the songs, Chad and I talked about a bunch of different songs we could conclude this message with, but that was the perfect song, right? Because we have a God who never fails, who answers our prayers. And one of the things that I love is when I see parents trusting God with their kids and modeling for their kids what worship is like and listening to God's word. Now, this has zero to do with my message, but this is one of the things that I bet these grandparents, those parents, and this dad pray for these two guys. I don't know if you know it, but these guys come and sit through the sermon. I'm talking about Chase and Zion right here in the front row. Sometimes they're the only one. No, actually, in this service, there are others in the front row. But one of the things that I think is great is that they're hearing God's word. And at a young age, they're hearing that God answers prayer. And that resonates in their head. And they see mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and others praying for things. And they see those answered prayers. So as you go home today, I think a great application is when you take your kids and you go to lunch, talk about in your family how God has answered prayer in your family. And let your kids hear the stories of God's faithfulness. Amen? Can we take that takeaway today? God bless you. Have a wonderful day as you worship Him and have lunch. Take care. Bye-bye.